What's up? This is Greg Sauce. You are listening to episode 112 of the Roto Sauce podcast, and I'm diving back into fantasy baseball on this show. I apologize if you've tuned in expecting another bi-weekly return to the 2QB XP's football focus, but this is part of the new Roto Sauce game plan. I want the show to reflect what's capturing my in-the-moment interest as a fantasy gamer, and right now that's baseball. Let's be real, too. I'm probably not the best guy to come to for NFL Combine content. I don't follow college football. I rely on other analysts to school me up on draft prospects. I do feel some responsibility as a football podcaster slash interviewer to get those guests on the show to share what they know, uh, and I will. But we still have plenty of time left before the NFL draft. So if all you care about is NFL, uh, take this time to dive into other sources of content. We'll we'll be here when you get back. Uh, so... My personal recommendations, check out the Roto Underworld radio show with Matt Kelly. Uh, he runs Player Profiler, and so on his podcast, you get a lot of really interesting discussion about measurables and college production and kind of the marriage of those two things as opposed to, you know, just looking at numbers or just watching film, um, all that good stuff. Uh, the Late Round podcast with J.J. Zacharyson is really good, digestible, data-driven, and the recent episodes he's put out are reviewing players who popped up in his prospect model as, you know, being you know, undervalued or, or just interesting players. Uh, on the Couch with Sigmund Bloom is also excellent. Uh, he has a really deep enthusiasm for football, and he always lines up great guests this time of year with, uh, you know, a draft focus. Uh, the Roto World Football Podcast with Josh Norris, all the other Roto World guys, and a bunch of great guests. Uh, Fantasy-related current events on that show, uh, including a recent quick hit series on the Combine, so check that out. I haven't had a chance to, to listen to those yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And, um, of course, the Ringers NFL podcast with Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, uh, and sometimes Danny Kelly, who's been on this show before. Uh, that's more of a, you know, a general football news and NFL analysis show. But the stuff you learn from them can definitely be applied to fantasy for sure. Uh, you probably listen to all these shows already, and hopefully those and others can tide you over if this baseball stuff that I'm doing right now isn't your thing. But please stay subscribed to the show. I'd really appreciate it. I'll keep the episode titles and the show notes pretty obvious so that you can tell what each episode is about. Of course, I would love if you all kept listening to everything. Uh, and this is probably the point where I should grovel for your downloads at the very least. I like keep downloading the show. Uh, but I know how valuable your time is. And so whatever portion of that time you can spend listening to this podcast, I, I'm immensely appreciative of that even if it's only the football-centric content that this feed was built on. So uh, hopefully you stick around for this baseball stuff and the other things I have in store to come. But uh, if you're just here for the football, uh, just keep watching the show notes, keep downloading if you will, and eventually we'll get back to it. Uh, but right now it's baseball draft season, and that's where these next couple shows are going to go. Uh, next week I'm going to dive deep into positional rankings with Toby from the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. But for now, I just wrapped up my draft in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, and this solo podcast is going to be a recap of my strategy and my picks. Generally just kind of reporting back on how the draft went for me, what my thought process was on the players I selected. And so if you've listened to any of the other recent baseball shows, uh, I've talked about this format a little bit, but check out TGFBI.com for details. Uh, I'm in... League number two of the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. I had the fourth pick in this league. And my general strategy for this was pretty indicative of what I do in most fantasy baseball drafts. And I've expressed some concerns on this podcast before that maybe I'm doing it wrong in the modern baseball era where, you know, starting pitching has really gone up in value in terms of fantasy. You are incentivized to pay up for stud pitchers, uh, the guys who are going to chew up a lot of innings with good ratios and good strikeout numbers. But I, I still push back against that to some extent. And so in TGFBI, I 
still wanted to fade pitching to some extent. Now, I wasn't going to go full fade. I, I do acknowledge that starting pitching is important if you're trying to win an overall title, and this is 315 teams competing for you know one overall winner, you can't punt any category. So I couldn't necessarily completely ignore starting pitchers or completely avoid relief pitchers, but I wanted to still fade pitching to some extent, a semi-fade, if you will. So that led me to a place where... I knew I wasn't going to take a pitcher with either of my first two picks, but I would consider a pitcher in the third round if the right type of player fell to that spot. Contrast that against the draft that Dalton Del Don had in my league, league number two. He was picking from the 14 spot, and he didn't pick his first pitcher until round 11. I, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to go that extreme. Now, I appreciate that he gave that a shot. I just don't know how well that sets you up to win the overall. And he could very well win this league running away based upon the start that he had. Like, if his late round pitching selections hit, he'll be fine. But in terms of competing against all the best teams from the other leagues, I don't know if this is the right way to do it. So with that in mind, I wasn't going to start thinking about pitching until round three at the earliest, but I didn't want to completely ignore it either. Um, other general strategies here, uh, I always want to have a plan when I go into a draft. And when it comes to fantasy baseball, and really any fantasy sport, you kind of have to... I feel like you can strip down that plan into some very like nebulous but you know, pretty obvious ideas, right? And the first is that there are elite commodities you have to take early. Now, how you decide to attack those elite commodities varies from drafter to drafter. Now, I talked about how those high-end pitching guys are worth the first or second round investment. And if I'm not doing that, what am I doing in the early rounds? What am I going for in terms of elite commodities? I'm going for the best possible hitting I can get. And with the overall competition in mind, I really wanted to aim for well-rounded batters, guys who are going to contribute in all five categories. And if they're not doing that, guys who are going to contribute in four categories and not kill me in the fifth category. After those elite commodities are off the board, then you kind of have to start picking and choosing good commodities in those middle rounds. And, and, and I say middle rounds, I'm really talking about like round four to round like 20. This is a lot of the draft is picking out the guys who do three or four things well, maybe one thing mediocre, and the, the fifth thing is either mediocre or bad for your overall stat profile. And then at the very end of the draft, you're looking for just upside options, streaming options. Like the late picks, you have to understand, may not last on your roster for very long. And so with those kind of three areas of the draft in mind, again, I was going for elite hitters early, and then I really wanted to try to just pick up value off those middle round picks. And when you're looking for those values, you also need to be conscious of what type of team you're trying to draft statistically. And pitching is at a premium. I think that stolen bases and batting average on the hitting side are also at a premium. I'm not you know, breaking any new ground here. You can get these sorts of, uh, I mean, a lot of people feel this way. So with that in mind, I did want to focus on SBs. I didn't want to focus on average. On the pitching side, I did not want to pay much for saves. And again, I, I normally punt closer altogether and just try to stack up closers on bad teams uh, or, or bad closers on good teams. That's generally my, my approach to the closer position in fantasy. But again, overall format here, I'm trying to compete against 315 people all at the same time. Probably means I have to pay up a little bit more for saves than I'm used to. Back to the hitting side. Runs and RBI matter. And I mentioned this on the last show with Mike Alexander, but I feel like it's easy to get sucked into stolen base totals and home run totals and kind of ignore those run and RBI stat categories, especially because a lot of the times we just make assumptions about that stuff, right? And we, and we do have to assume, we do have to make projections, but we have to be careful about not projecting too many RBI or too many runs for players who are going to bat in 
spots in the order that don't produce those stats, right? And so we have to place extra value on top of the order hitters, especially those who are on good lineups. And we're really just trying to promote our counting stat production by doing that. And then kind of last big strategy tip, and I, and I touched on this before, is that I wanted to remember that my roster's last handful of picks should be fluid commodities. I am trying to hit on those players that I'm picking, but I also need to understand that most late round picks are likely to be cut at some point in the season. And so you're going to see that play out as we get into my picks. And so let's do that. Let's start off at the top. Fourth pick overall, I took Trey Turner, the shortstop for the Washington Nationals. Full disclosure, I was planning to pick him here before you know any of those news reports about adding more stolen base attempts. I would have taken him as high as third. And if the top three picks had been Trouts and Betts and Turner, I would have taken Ronald Acuna at fourth. Uh, this played a lot into my Kentucky Derby style or slotting uh, of the pick order that I wanted. I, I wanted a top four pick to kind of guarantee that I could get either Trey Turner or Ronald Acuna. And, and maybe I didn't think about that hard enough. Maybe I should have gone for a later pick in the first round to, you know, and hope that one of those guys slid to me. Because in a lot of these TGFBI drafts, they did. They did slide further down past pick number four. But I generally want an early pick. I, I want that agency. I want to be proactive. And I like drafting to the turn. So I, I was happy at four. I was happy that Turner fell there because he was the player I wanted. His potential for steals are why I think he needs to be drafted that high. The category is scarce, as I've talked about, and locking in a 40-plus steals guy who doesn't detract in other categories seems like a really great place to start in this overall-slash-tournament setting. I think you could make the same sort of case for the consensus top arms, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, because they offer the same sort of across-the-board contributions to the scarce stats at their position, at, at the pitching position, but I figured that pitching would generally be overvalued by the room, and I like to push back against those public trends. So, like that, I went with the hitter in Trey Turner. The downside of making this pick was spending high draft capital on a player who isn't really elite in homers or RBI, and if I'm skewing my later hitter picks towards you know supplementing Turner's more modest power... I'm probably falling even further behind at pitching. And so that was a concern of mine. I did care about that. And it did lead me to want to use that third round pick on a pitcher if the right guy fell. But we'll get there in a minute. Uh, in the second round, 27th overall, I took Chris Bryant. Uh, he has third base and outfield eligibility uh, for the Cubs. He's still only 27, has that near 40 homer season on his resume. I think he's still, you know, like a late first round, early second round talent, and I love the dual eligibility. Not that that really factored into my calculus here. I just like the hitter here more than anything else. I did briefly think about taking a pitcher in this spot, but I figured I would still see one of Aaron Nola, Blake Snell, Trevor Bauer, or Carlos Carrasco in the next round. And those four all felt like similar values to me among the pitchers. And because the three picks prior to me in the second round all were pitchers, I did like the kind of contrarianish value of taking another hitter. Like, again, steering away from positional runs, like not biting on those when they happen. Uh, in the third round, came back to me. I did have full intentions of considering a pitcher in this spot. And Carlos Carrasco represented the last guy left in his starting pitcher tier for me. But I didn't expect Anthony Rizzo to fall. And maybe I should have because his ADP is around pick 40. Uh, but what's the difference between Rizzo and Paul Goldschmidt, who went 13 picks earlier, or Freddie Freeman, who went 17 picks earlier? I, I don't see one, really, with Rizzo. I don't see a significant enough difference between those players to justify the cost difference between them. 
the projections for all three of those first basemen are strikingly similar, so I, I don't understand that difference in price. What really sold me on Rizzo in this spot was his profile for 90-plus runs, 90-plus RBI. I didn't feel like I would be able to find that level of all-around offensive contributor with my next picks, let alone even later in the draft. And as much as I like Carrasco, and I really did think hard about taking him here, the lower depths of pitcher ADP still featured players, particularly in rounds four and round five, who I think might be able to approximate what Carrasco offers, assuming that things break right. Yes, Carrasco is a safer bet, but I don't think he's so much safer than guys like Patrick Corbin or Steven Strasburg, James Paxton, Jack Flaherty, Mike Clevenger. The drop-off in safety just felt steeper from Rizzo to the round four hitters than it did from Carrasco to the round four pitchers. And with so many other drafters in this league paying up for pitching, I didn't mind pushing harder against that trend by drafting a third hitter to start my draft, especially one who could generate positive value in both runs and RBI. Those are the categories I think are getting overlooked the most often these days in fantasy baseball. The community has definitely become a lot better about trying to project protect batting average, so I don't feel like I'm gaining as much of an advantage with Rizzo there, but everyone is always going to cover those homers and steals and kind of forget about runs and RBI. And yeah, I get it. Those stats are context-dependent, and therefore they're tougher to project, but we still have to project and target them with our picks, and I feel like Anthony Rizzo batting where he's going to bat in that Cubs lineup is probably going to produce you know high-end numbers in both those categories. So while most other teams are chasing the scarcity of pitching stats in those first three rounds, I was content to chase the scarcity of you know just an every-category contributor on offense with Anthony Rizzo. In the fourth round, I caved. I took a pitcher. I took Jack Flaherty at the 57th pick overall, 12th pick of the fourth round. He felt like the highest upside starter available. And and again, we're shooting for an overall title here. So upside does matter a little bit more than floor, I think, especially with the pitchers. Like if I'm paying down at a position, if I'm taking more risk on at that position in the first place, I might as well go full tilt and just go for the guy who I think has the potential to be, you know, a top five, top eight type of pitcher when drafting next year like if I if I can hit the breakout now then this pick pays off but with that said I wasn't really confident in Jack Flaherty being necessarily the best bet I I have some concerns about him uh, especially in terms of how many innings he's going to be able to pitch for the Cardinals so when it came back to me in the fifth round 64th overall I took another one of those kind of high upside pitchers Mike Clevenger of Cleveland just wanted another bite at that starting pitcher Apple I debated Clevenger versus Jose Barrios here uh, but ultimately decided on Clevenger because I like his park a little bit more. And Berrios just seems generally risky. He hasn't quite put it together in the same way that Clevenger did over the past like season and a half. I, I feel like this pair of starting pitchers lays a really solid strikeouts foundation with Flaherty and Clevenger. And that allowed me to feel pretty open with my next few picks uh, when I was deciding between either starters or relievers and hitters. I, I set myself up with some flexibility. But most importantly, with these two pitchers that I took... I made sure that I got high K-rate guys, and because I you know, didn't draft one early in those first three rounds, I needed to make sure that I wasn't giving up too much in strikeouts. Yes, I'm taking on more risk in ERA and whip and wins, but at the very least, my strikeouts should be intact, and that, that was a major goal for me, having waited on pitching. After spending those first two picks on pitchers, though, I was pretty confident my next pick would be back on the hitting side. And I was really hoping for Yasiel Puig to make it back to me in the sixth round. But he actually went with the very next pick. He went right after I took my Clevenger. So that was a bit of an overpay in my mind, just relative to ADP. But this is the type of format that rewards you for going after the guys that you really like and getting you know the players you think are going to pop. And Puig moving into uh, Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati definitely projects for that type of ability. 
The hitter I would have taken over Clevenger was probably Jose Abreu, and he went three picks later. And so while I feel like I, I missed out on those players, and you know I, I gave up on those guys with the opportunity cost of taking my Clevenger, it is kind of a relief to see that they were drafted in the range where I was considering them. Uh, it, it makes me feel like I had the room calibrated well enough, if that makes sense. Anyway, there were a bunch of other picks besides Puig and Abreu who went there uh, in the 5th and 6th round before it made it back to me. Uh, in the 6th, 87th overall, I took Eddie Rosario, outfielder for the Minnesota Twins. I thought about going with a more steals-heavy pick here, but I decided to wait another round and see if Jose Peraza would make it back. And that seemed like a pretty solid possibility based on Peraza's ADP. A little less important of a reason for me to pass on Peraza was the redundancy that he offers with Trey Turner at shortstop. That position is relatively deep this season, and I didn't have any outfielders locked in unless I planned to move Chris Bryant from third to outfield. So I didn't necessarily want to double up on shortstop when I still had so many outfield spots open. The other thing that bugged me about Peraza is how the Reds' improved lineup is probably going to bump Peraza down in the order and hurt his counting stats. Roster Resource currently has Peraza slated to hit seventh, and so again, if I'm trying to focus on making sure I get runs and RBI, I... don't feel good about taking a guy like Peraza in the sixth round as much as I like him, you know, as a standalone player, as a talent uh, in fantasy terms. If I missed on Peraza, the plan would be to pivot back to pitching, uh, probably a closer to set some sort of foundation and saves. And so after I took Rosario, there were six picks before it gets back to me in the seventh round. Peraza was still there. What did I do? I passed on him again. I I took that closer. I I set that foundation and saves. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the person, Roberto Osuna, but I do like the player's situation there closing for the Houston Astros. This is just an admission to the overall format. You got to get some saves. Osuna was the guy who I feel like is going to do that best for me. Most of the closers in TGFBI fell below their NFBC ADPs. uh, So, Asuna was another one of those. I was happy to get one of the potentially elite arms at, at his position below you know, the overall market price on the NFBC platform, especially considering the overall format. In the eighth round, the 117th overall pick uh, was Rugnet Odor, second baseman for the Texas Rangers. I probably panicked a bit too much about not having a second baseman at this point, but Odor's power speed potential was really appealing to me here. I didn't feel like I'd get that from any of the other second basemen further down ADP. The other player I was considering in this spot was Justin Turner, but Odor has a slightly better track record of staying healthy. Turner went two picks later, so I wasn't able to get him after the wheel. Uh, but, but I like the Odor pick, you know, that power speed combo uh, this late in the draft at a, a middle infield position, um, specifically second base that I feel is, is relatively shallow. I think when I got him here, whereas like Scooter Jeanette went, you know, at the beginning of the seventh round, uh, Jonathan VR, Ozzy Albies went back in the fifth round. Odor doesn't feel like too far a cry from those guys in just like overall value. Yes, Odor is going to hurt me a little bit more in batting average, but he does have potential for big power numbers from the second base position. And I do like getting those guys who produce uncommon stats for their position. That is something that I generally value. And I didn't give up too many stolen bases with Odor to do that. If you pull up Odor's Fantrax page, you're going to see stolen base projections ranging from 13 all the way up to 18. So he's chipping in there, uh, and that's something I like. I, I'm i hoping that I get the same sort of chip-ins, maybe not up in the teens, but you know minor chip-ins from Chris Bryant, from Anthony Rizzo, from Eddie Rosario. Uh, but Odor you know, offering a little bit more of a cushion there to back up those nickel and dime power hitters I have, as well as Trey Turner's hopefully 40-plus steals. I feel like Odor was a really nice pick in this spot, even if I'm you know not in love with the batting average. I think it was worth it there. 
In the ninth round, I wanted to take another starter, and I, I really tanked on this pick. I took a long time trying to decide between Robbie Ray and Madison Bumgarner, and I'm still not sure I made the right choice. I picked Robbie Ray at 124th overall, but Bumgarner had slid way, way past his ADP, and if this were a football league, if this were an MFL 10, or I guess what they call him, a best ball 10 now, I, I would really just lean on that ADP value that you're getting and just slam Madison Bumgarner, but here... In TGFBI, with that overall format, I feel like the upside available from Robbie Ray, just that bigger strikeout upside compared to Bumgarner, was really worth it. Now, you pay the price when you pick up Ray. You know, it's his ERA and whip are historically bad, and I don't know if it was correct to kind of gamble on, you know, an outlier season from Ray in those categories. I mean, this pick is probably going to make or break my draft. Now, this isn't to say that Bumgarner would have been the correct pick 100% of the time and that he would have saved my draft if Ray doesn't work out. Like, Bumgarner could just as easily bust, right? But in terms of Ray specifically, I feel like he's really going to have to overperform in ERA and WHIP. If he does that, I think I'll have a great shot to be competitive in the overall because of how much he pumps you up in strikeouts. And I, I feel like the wins should be there, you know, reasonably enough. Like he should pitch enough innings to offer enough wins. It's just, is he going to kill me in ERA or WHIP or both? And if he kills me in both, I'm probably in trouble. Uh, but again, all, all we're really shooting for here is the overall title, and you have to take some risks to do that. And Robbie Ray was probably the biggest one for me in this draft. I'm really curious to see how this pick plays out over the course of the season. In the 10th round at 147th overall, I really wanted to take another pitcher, but I was just too far behind at outfield with only ready, with only Eddie Rosario rostered. I, again, I thought about potentially moving Chris Bryant from third to outfield, but the landscape of the remaining third baseman at this point was pretty barren. There were just a lot more viable outfielders left, and so that kind of steered me towards just picking an outfielder in this spot. I took Andrew McCutcheon. He's playing for the Phillies this year. McCutcheon is boring. But I really think he's going to benefit from changing teams. So, you know, better lineup, especially now that they have Bryce Harper, a better park than playing in San Francisco. And after taking Odor, I wanted some more batting average protection. I think McCutcheon is going to provide that. I really liked getting him in this spot. It's like the polar opposite of the Robbie Ray pick. Like the McCutcheon, the McCutcheon choice seems so safe and so predictable. And I'm sure now that I'm saying this, he's going to just get injured in week two or whatever and totally burn me. But I, I really like kind of balancing out the risk of Robbie Ray with, uh, you know, the very safe floor of Andrew McCutcheon the following round. After the turn, it wrapped back around to me at 154th in the 11th round. I took Buster Posey, a catcher for the San Francisco Giants. Again, this is an admission to the overall format. I really didn't want to fully punt catcher. I did that in the Barf League, and I did not like the results. And the Barf League is only 14 teams. This league in TGFBI is a 15-teamer. I don't really care that Posey's power is diminished. I just want at-bats, and I want batting average. And hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, he's going to deliver that. The fact that I took him here does soften the blow for not taking Bumgarner a little bit earlier. I, I don't want to rely too much on bad teams like the Giants. Uh, I think that's important when you're generally preparing for fantasy baseball is you want to be looking for the teams that are going to perform well because the teams who score more runs are going to, you know, generate more runs, more RBI, and... If you're picking pitchers from those teams, like the teams that score more runs, the teams that perform better are going to generate more wins. Uh, it's going to let starters go deeper into games because they're scoring more. Like You generally want to be targeting as many players from good teams as you can. This is something that I think we learn in fantasy football that doesn't always cross over in the conversation to baseball, but 
it should more often. I think this is something that we need to at least acknowledge a little bit more often. In the 12th round at 177th overall, I took Rich Hill, uh, the Dodgers starting pitcher. I thought I'd be able to land Andrew Heaney here based off ADP and based upon how far down he was buried in the NFBC draft software, but Heaney only went four picks after I took Posey. So again, this is one of those formats where we're drafting with sharp fantasy baseball minds. Every league here is super competitive and people want to get the guys that they believe in. They want to get the guys who have those underlying metrics that you know, push them past where ADP shows them to be drafted, and Heaney's one of those guys. I fell back on the oft-injured Rich Hill, but at the very least, I think that Hill really complements the Robbie Ray pick. Uh, Hill's going to shore up some of the ERA and whip weakness that Ray presents, and Hill's still going to provide solid caper nine, you know, just general strikeouts per inning pitched, and he plays for the Dodgers, a good team, so when he does pitch, you know, when Hill does pitch, he's going to give me, you know, hopefully a good opportunity for wins in those games. In the 13th round, 184th overall, I took Carlos Santana. He slotted into my corner infield spot. I like that he's going back to Cleveland. He's familiar with that ballpark. It's generally pretty friendly to what he does as a hitter. The batting average from Santana should be slightly subpar, even with you know the positive regression based upon what we saw last year. But I did prioritize batting average enough in the early rounds that I felt like I could take you know the counting stat value here with Santana in a later round. I did consider Eric Hosmer in this spot instead of Santana as more of you know a safe player in terms of batting average, but I also figured that I could get Brandon Belt much later for production similar to Hosmer, and that, that was always kind of in the back of my mind. It's like, why pay for Hosmer now where his ADP says he should go when Brandon Belt, I feel like, is being undervalued by the fantasy baseball community? So I opted for Santana, a little bit more power. Uh, I, I don't know if he'll be that much different than Hosmer in terms of runs and RBI, but I think he should be better just because he plays in the AL. Those are generally better hitting lineups, uh, but we'll, we'll see. I, I might regret this one uh, because ultimately I did take on more batting average risk later in the draft, and with that in mind, it's possible that Hosmer would have been a better pick for me in the 13th round than Carlos Santana. In the 14th, I went back to the relief pitcher well. I took Michael Givens of the Baltimore Orioles. I really wanted Will Smith or Pedro Strope to fall to this spot, but I had to settle for Givens uh, as my second closer. He's not a great one. I definitely, after this pick, made plans to stack up at least one more reliever later and just kind of take a shotgun spread approach to the closer position. I, I don't hate this pick. This is just more of a necessity thing than anything else. Like, you have to get saves, and Givens is generally viewed as a guy who's locked into that closer role in Baltimore. And I feel like there's value in that role, not necessarily in the player specifically. Like there are other relief pitchers I like more. Like I was hoping to pick up Andrew Miller in a later round or even Dellen Batansis, who is probably not going to get many saves if at all. Uh, but Givens just the saves he's projected for was appealing enough for me to, you know, pass over those just generally good relievers with less opportunity for saves. In the 15th round, 214th overall, I took Marcus Simeon, a shortstop for the Oakland Athletics. He's slotted into my middle infield spot behind Trey Turner at shortstop. Uh, this really felt like a great value considering how high Jorge Polanco with. He went back in the 12th round, so I got Simeon three rounds later, and I don't see that much difference between the two. But it didn't feel like that much of a steal when Andrelton Simmons went later uh, in the 19th round. So I feel like all three of those guys are pretty close in value. 
And Jeff Erickson, who landed Simmons in the 19th, probably got the best value of those three shortstops. But still, I like where I got Simmons, and I feel like that power-speed combo, a solid batting average, a pretty decent Oakland lineup. I mean, it's not a great park to hit in, but I like the players they have in that offense. So again, I think Simeon's another one of those guys who has sneaky appeal because he gives you power, he gives you speed, and because he plays in a pretty good lineup, the runs in RBI should be there to some extent as well. In the 16th round, 227th overall, I took Odubel Herrera, outfielder for the Phillies. I wanted a pitcher at this pick, but my cue just got absolutely wrecked after I took Semyon. Joe Musgrove, Andrew Miller, Alex Reyes, Jose Quintana, John Lester, Tyler Skaggs all got picked between my 15th round pick with Semyon and the 16th round pick where I took Odubel. So again, I saw the run, I steered away from it with the pitchers. I was left waffling between a few different outfielders. Herrera ended up being my first choice, uh, but the others I considered taking in his spot here ended up being my next two picks anyway. So uh, I I think that it all kind of worked out. I like Herrera for the relatively balanced profile that he offers, Uh, you know, kind of contributes across the board, chips in a little bit in every category. And that's why I picked him first of the three outfielders I got. But I'll admit there is some downside with Herrera. I think the least appealing part of his fantasy game is where he's going to hit in that Phillies order. Probably likely near the bottom of the lineup, especially now that they have Harper. They just have too many good bats for Herrera to really justify being up at the top of the order like he was at times uh, over the past couple seasons. In the 17th round, uh, one of the other outfielders I picked up was Randall Grichuk of the Toronto Blue Jays. Unlike Herrera, Grichuk is projected to bat high in his batting order, uh, slated to bat fourth as I look at roster resource right now. Definitely less balanced with Grichuk than with Herrera, obviously, but what Grichuk offers in power stats meshes well with Herrera's more stable profile. Like, Grichuk's still going to give you the runs. He's still going to give you the RBI in that four spot. I mean, more so RBI than runs, but the power he provides kind of offsets the middling power that Herrera has. With my next pick, I feel like I really balanced out the overall profile of these three outfielders. I took Cedric Mullins of the Orioles. Mullins should bat leadoff, and he's probably going to run. He's got good speed. So he's like the the hot fudge that kind of fills in the gaps in my Herrera plus Grichuk two-scoop outfielder Sunday. I'm getting a different profile from each one of these outfielders, but when you kind of conglomerate them all together, you get a lot of runs, a lot of RBI, a lot of homers, a lot of steals, and a fair enough batting average between the three of them. I, I feel like this is just a really good kind of mashup of three guys to create an overall profile for my team that is going to look good in you know the counting stat categories and not kill me in average. But after going outfielder, 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 I had to get back to pitching in the 19th round. Uh, with the 274th pick, I took Kyle Gibson of the Twins. He showed pretty surprising consistency in 2018. He was sub 3.75 in ERA every month except for August. And it looks like he got a little lucky with his BABIP last season, but he did raise his strikeout rate up to 20, 21.7%. Uh, his career mark, you know, including last year, is about 17.2%, according to Fangraphs. So if he can keep up the strikeout rate gains and not regress too much in terms of, uh, you know, the BABIP equalizing and seeing what that does to, you know, runners on base and all that stuff, I think that there's potential value here. And in the 19th round, let's be real, they're, they're really not going to be that many good starters left. I kind of knew I'd be throwing a lot of darts on late round starters from here on out. And we'll we'll get to more of those picks uh, a little bit later in the draft recap. But in the 20th round, after I took Gibson, I went back to the hitting well. I picked a Brandon Belt, uh, the aforementioned Brandon Belt, 297th overall. Uh, He slotted into my utility spot. And I just have no idea why the hate has gone this far on Brandon Belt. I had considered drafting him with kind of each of my previous five picks, like when I was taking those outfielders, when I was taking Gibson. 
I, I just couldn't justify taking Belt as my third first baseman when I was so far behind at outfielder and at pitcher. And I, I just didn't want to lock up my utility spot quite that early. I, I was I just wanted more balance from those picks. And and yeah, Belt's situation does leave a lot to be desired, but he's a good hitter, and it is possible that a midseason trade could improve his situation, right? I think that's a distinct possibility considering, you know, kind of the state of the Giants franchise. Like, they should be tanking. Uh, they really don't need, you know, these veteran-type players. Uh, I, I like Belt. I, I'm a Giants fan. I hope he stays with the team. But at the same time, I really wouldn't be, you know, shocked if they moved on from him. And if he goes to a better hitter's park, I, I think that where he's going now in drafts is going to be kind of silly, you know, relative to his skills and, uh, you know, that possibility that he could end up in a better situation partway through the season. In the 21st round, I still had needs at pitching, uh, but I decided to lock up my second catcher. I took Omar Narvaez of the Seattle Mariners, 304th overall. I think this is probably a bit of a reach considering how equally lackluster all the remaining catchers profiled to be at this point in the draft, but Narvaez isn't going to kill me in batting average, and he should stay in the lineup more than those other late-round backstops. So I feel like that was enough to make me want to pull the trigger here on my second catcher. Again, I kind of just had this fear from the barf draft of of what my catcher position would look like if I kept punting, if I you know kept on you know kicking the can down the road and just accepting you know Jonathan Lucroy or uh, Tyler Flowers or someone like that. I just didn't want to be in that position. I wanted at bats. I wanted guys who weren't going to kill me in batting average. Everything else I get from my catchers is going to feel like gravy to me, and and, and that's what my mindset was at that position. With Narvaez locked up, though, that was my entire offense. I had every hitting spot accounted for. Uh, I, I definitely wanted to pick up a couple of bench bats because the NFBC format does allow you to uh, switch up hitters on Fridays. Uh, it does not allow you to switch up pitchers uh, midweek, but still, I, I knew I would want a couple more bench bats. With that said, I was just going to take the bottom of the barrel, guys. I really needed to get back to my pitching and address that because I waited so long up at the top of the draft, because I didn't draft Carlos Carrasco to kind of anchor my staff. And so in the 22nd round, 327th overall, I took Brad Boxberger. This is another reliever pick. Uh, He very well could be the closer for the Royals. He's not guaranteed to see that ninth inning work, but he is potentially a third closer for my team. And I like having that redundancy at the closer position. In a 15-team league, generally you want to make sure you have two closers, but if I can lock up three and either negate a closer spot for one of my opponents or uh, you know have the option some weeks when I don't like my starting pitch-up lineups to rack up a few extra saves, hopefully, or even just like one or two extra saves, I feel like there's a lot of value in having that flexibility. And so I, I knew I wanted to go after more closers than just Michael Givens and Roberto Osuna, who I drafted earlier, and that led me to this Boxberger pick here. In the 23rd round, I took Trevor Cahill, a starter for the Angels. I'm a bit biased from the flashes of brilliance that Cahill showed last season. I had him in a couple leagues, and you know he, he really did look good at times last year. And I don't really mind that the bias kind of led me in his direction because there, there really aren't that many good starters available at this point in a draft anyway. My, my goal in this round and for the next few was really just to find starting pitchers who are likely to make their rotations to start the year and could therefore line up for potential two-start weeks in that first month and a half of the season. Because I know I'm going to be trying to churn starters to some extent at the bottom of my rotation. I need those two-start guys to kind of double my chances for wins, double you know my strikeout production uh, at times. I don't want to play too hard into that and you know really damage my ERA and WHIP. But again, if I 
like the skills that Cahill has, if I like you know what I saw from him last year, maybe he translates those skills to this year. Maybe he takes a minor step forward, or maybe he just kind of evens out and, and is a little more steady. If he can do that, and I get him in the 23rd round, I feel like that's a great value. And if he doesn't, I just cut him and I pick up somebody else. That's basically what I'm looking at all these remaining picks as are, do they work in the first month and a half? If yes, great. If no, fine, we'll move on. And so that general theme kind of applied to all of my next few picks. Uh, In the 24th round, 357th overall, I took Dylan Bundy, starter for the Orioles. He's risky, but he definitely has, uh, you know, that high strikeout rate, which is good. And his prospect pedigree does matter to me. Like, Bundy was regarded as an elite prospect at times. He's still only 26 years old. Maybe he puts it together a little bit late. He's a late bloomer if he does that. Again, 24th round. I'm not risking too much taking him here, especially relative to the other pitchers who are available. I don't love the situation in Baltimore, but whatever. We're, we're throwing darts at this point. Uh, Mike Miner in the 25th was another one, another one of those picks, 364th overall. Just another swing at that potential two-start pitcher pinata. Uh, round 26, same thing, Matt Harvey of the Angels. In the 27th round, I went back to a hitter. I took Scott Kingery of the Phillies. This is just kind of a late-round gamble against the current concerns for Cesar Hernandez, who has some injury issues he's working through, and Michael Franco, who just has never been able to put it together consistently at the major league level. I I think that Kingery is another one of those guys who has that prospect pedigree, and yes, he was bad last season, but he's young. Maybe he figures something out in spring training, uh, or he figured something out over the offseason, and he can put it together, especially now that there's a little less pressure on him to perform uh, for the Phillies based upon all the other you know veterans they have who are on that roster ready to carry it. In the 28th round, back to pitchers, 417th overall, I took Nate Carnes, another Orioles pitcher. Uh, this was kind of my one last try for a strikeout upside sleeper. Uh, again, it's tough to like the situation for a starter in Baltimore, but what can you do? These are dart throws and Carnes, uh, you know, we'll see. He, he had potential last year. I was all over him last year before he got hurt, and so I'm just kind of re-upping again in 2019 on that hype uh, that I had for Carnes last year. 29th round, I went back to the hitting side of things. 424th overall, I took Colin Moran, third baseman for the Pirates. He showed some signs of life down the stretch last season, and I did want to add another third baseman. Just on the slim chance that Moran pops, I'll have that flexibility to potentially plug in Chris Bryant in the outfield on occasion. I really didn't get that much more positional flexible guys, which... I'm a little bummed about, but hopefully some of the guys I have will add eligibility through the course of the year, and I'll always be on the lookout for those more flexible types of players off of waivers. In a league this deep, it's unlikely that I'm going to hit on a ton of that, but uh, there is that possibility. The other concern with Moran is that he's competing with Young Ho Kong for that third base job with the Pirates. Kong was a good player in 2015 and 2016. Uh, but he's always struggled to kind of get full playing time, you know, 126, 103 games played in those two seasons, and then he lost 2017 and 2018 to injury and work visa sorts of problems, if I remember correctly. It'll be interesting to see what his playing time looks like, because the Pirates do have Moran, they have, and their infield situation is generally pretty well sorted out. Like, if you look at the projections for Kong on Uh, Fangrass, you see anywhere between 37 games played up to 79, or excuse me, 99, and I I don't know, I I feel like he has the talent to kind of work his way into that lineup, but he could end up being like a super utility guy for them, and hopefully, you know, this late round gamble on Moran will pay off for me, Uh, but again, I'm not, you know, having any 
grand hopes for that. I <laughs> There's a very likely chance that Moran gets cut at some point. Uh, with my last pick, 30th round, 447th overall, I took my boy, Anthony Swarzak, a relief pitcher for the Mariners. Uh, just one more stab at a potential closer here because I think Hunter Strickland stinks. I've talked about that on the show uh, a couple times already. I'm not going to belabor it. But yeah, Swarzak just could potentially net me some saves. And if he doesn't find himself in that sort of role, I'll be very comfortable cutting him and just picking somebody else up. So to wrap things up, I really like the way this team turned out. I did not mind the results having passed on Carlos Carrasco in the third round. I think that Flaherty and Clevenger will do a good job approximating what Carlos Carrasco was going to do. Now, I, I missed out on some hitters when I was taking those pitchers, so opportunity costs come, could come back to bite me to some extent. Uh, but I, I like the way the roster came out. I feel like I got a really good uh, suite of outfielders despite how little I paid for them. Uh, and my infield is great. I, re- I really like my infield. Uh, pitching is the big question mark. I, like I said, I think that Robbie Ray pick is really going to make or break my draft. Uh, I mean, throw in the general caveats that everyone has to worry about. Are my closers going to hit? Am I going to get enough saves to compete for the overall? And it's going to be fierce, man. There are a lot of really smart people playing in these leagues. 15-teamers just out of the gate mean that there aren't going to be that many useful players on waivers. So, you know, playing the fab game during the season is going to be really complicated and really fun, to be honest. That's one of my favorite things about leagues this competitive is just trying to outsmart people on the waiver wire. Uh, I feel like I did a pretty good job of playing those games last year after a point. Like, in the beginning of the season, I did not do a very good job. And then kind of around, like, the two- or three-month mark, I really dialed in, like, what sort of bids I should be making on fab. And I'm hoping that what I learned last year will translate to better performance in the early months this year. Um, Looking at the TGFBI projections, I really like where my team ended up. These are going to change because there's still some drafts that aren't complete yet. But in the overall, uh, I'm currently ranked 10th in the projections, uh, hitting rank of 5th overall, uh, pitching rank 61st, and again, as you know, the rest of these drafts complete, uh, we could see some you know potential gains or losses in those rankings. But I, I like that it projects me very well for hitting because that was my overall focus. Of course, um, yes, I expect I expected to be a little bit lower in pitching based upon you know all the concessions I made. Uh, I really the projections really don't like my ERA and WHIP, but. Again, I'm kind of counting on my ability to play matchups in season, to play the waiver wire well on the pitching side. Uh, Hopefully, you know, injuries and other flops don't kill me too much on the hitting side, and I can just focus on making the pitching work. Because if I can do that, my offense, I think, is good enough to carry me, and I I really have a a decent shot at making a run at the overall. If not, at at the very least, trying to win this particular league, uh, number two in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. In terms of the ADP rankings of these projections, I rank 148th, uh, which is not great. I mean, it's kind of middle of the pack, really. Uh, There are 315 teams, so I'm slightly above average. Um, The ADP percentage that I gained here was about 0.4%. So over the entirety of my draft, I generally paid about market value for the guys that I got. I don't care too much about ADP in a format like this, though, because there are so many people reaching and because there are so many people trying to play the value game. If I end up skewing one way or the other, I I don't really care too much about that. And in general, based upon where I was drafting in my particular league, you know, near the turn at fourth overall, that means that if I'm constructing my team in a way that I think makes sense, and if I'm paying for the players that I believe help me win, I'm probably going to have to reach and uh, probably going to have to just accept certain guys' values, even if I don't like them. Um, 
my biggest regret in that regard, again, is probably not getting Madison Bumgarner. Uh, but, you know, Robbie Ray, hopefully he'll pan out. He's the wild card, man. That's that's the whole draft is tied to him, it feels like. Uh, but anyway, uh, that does it for this draft report. I hope that, you know, this... I hope that this insight into my mindset for the draft is helpful to you. Uh, I think this, at the very least, highlights some players that I like and some values that I like. Uh, I think Brandon Belt was probably the the biggest poster boy for a player I think is being undervalued too much. But, you know, Rizzo up at the top is another one. Like, I don't think he's a third rounder. I think he should be a second rounder. Uh, Eddie Rosario, I feel, is a little undervalued, but um, that, that has more to do, I think, with outfield generally being thinner than people realize. Uh, that's another, not, not a regret of mine from this draft, but I feel like if I were to do it over again, I might've leaned a little bit harder towards the outfield position with my first, you know, five to six picks instead of just ending up with Rosario and, you know, the flexibility of Chris Bryant with third base and outfield. I mean, third base is even shallower than outfield. So, you know, taking Chris Bryant in the second round means that I'm going to want to slot him as a third baseman, not an outfielder. Uh, but Outfielder does thin out pretty quickly in these 15-team leagues, and while I like my you know balance of McCutcheon, Herrera, Grichuk, and Mullins, uh, I do feel like all of those guys come with some amount of risk. You know, in the in the case of McCutcheon, it's just age-related. Uh, Herrera potentially playing time and batting order concerns. Uh, Grichuk is just a streaky guy, uh, kind of a, a risk-reward type guy in general, and Mullins is just a you know a, a bit of an unknown. Like we, I feel like I know what I'm getting from him. But really, I don't. Like, we haven't seen enough of him at the major league level to know if he's going to pan out. I mean, taking him in the 18th round isn't too risky, but I wish I had taken, uh, you know, at least one more sure thing as an outfielder uh, in addition to Eddie Rosario. And I don't know who that is. Um, Maybe the real answer is that I should have taken Acuna over Turner fourth overall. And and I did think about that uh, with my first pick, but ultimately I just, I really wanted to make sure I didn't lose out on that stolen base stud. And that led me to my first pick of Trey Turner. There I go rambling on. I'm trying to wrap things up, but I just keep talking about the draft and talk about the team. Um, and again, this is this is fantasy baseball draft season, man. This is one of my favorite times of year. I mean, football draft season's right up there too. But good luck in your drafts. If there's anything you have questions about, uh, you want to hear me talk about on the air of the podcast uh, next week. Like I said, I'm going to be talking to Toby from the Bat Flip Crazy podcast about his rankings and my rankings, where we diverge, where we uh, find similarities. Uh, So if you have any rankings-related questions, just general baseball questions, uh, fire them off at me on Twitter. I'm at Greg Sauce on there. Uh, If you would, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Hit that subscribe button while you're at it. Uh, All that stuff really helps other people find the show. Uh, It helps me, you know, get my name out there. And I'm doing this all by myself at this point. Um, As you've probably inferred from the switch from the 2QB experience to the Roto Sauce podcast branding, uh, this is kind of becoming just my own thing uh and i hope that that's cool with you the listeners um i i will still be talking about two quarterback fantasy football a lot on this show as redraft season approaches uh and as the nfl draft approaches but again i'm trying to reach kind of a wider audience uh talk about baseball talk about football talk about uh, other things as well uh, coming down the road here so please help me share the podcast i i really would appreciate it uh the ratings and reviews go a long way towards doing that and even just word of mouth, like tell your friends on Twitter, tell your friends in real life, like let, let people know uh, that you, you found a podcast that you like. I, I hope you like it. I, I assume if you listen this far, you do like it. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your time uh, taking 
taking precious minutes out of your day to uh, you know, spend it with me in your ears. And uh, th- that really makes me feel uh, super stoked. I, I'm, I'm so happy that there are people out here uh, willing to kind of give me this platform. And um, I, I want to make the platform as good as it can possibly be. So spread the word, give feedback. All that stuff really helps me give you a better podcast product. Um, so once again, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Take care. Adios. Adios.